So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2, and we're going to look at uh, about the first 10 verses of this chapter. Let's, let's read the first few of these verses together, though, as you're standing in honor of the reading of God's Word. It says, and you know this story, and a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi, so the, women, uh, the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, dabbed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. This child is the child who became known as Moses. Father, we do thank you for this word. Lord, we do thank you for our moms today and how we've uh, had an opportunity just to celebrate them this morning. Now I pray that you would give us instruction from your word that we all might learn to be the very best moms, dads, parents, grandparents that we can possibly be. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated this morning. The mom and her daughter were walking along One day, and the girl reached down, and she picked something up off the ground, and she began to put it in her mouth like kids will do sometimes. And the mom looked down at her daughter, and she goes, Stop! Don't do that! You can't put that in your mouth. Don't you dare put that in your mouth. And the little girl said, Why, Mommy? It looks like something I could put in my mouth. She said, Why? You don't know where that's been. You don't know who's touched it. There are germs that come from all kinds of places. Those germs could get into your system, and you could get really sick as a result of putting things in your mouth that you don't know where they've been, and you're not supposed to put in your mouth. Mom just gave this lecture, and the girl said, wow, Mommy, how do you know all of that? And she said, well, you know, it's on the mommy test. Before you can be a mommy, you have to take a mommy test, and And I had to learn all of that for the mommy test, to pass the mommy test. And she goes, the little daughter said, well, wow, what if you would not have passed the mommy test? And as the mom thought about how she was going to answer that, the little girl said, guess you'd have had to have been a dad, wouldn't you? (laughs) Uh, Perhaps... It's as difficult to pass the mommy test today as it ever has been. It's difficult to be a parent, to bring children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Certainly, the culture is against almost everything that is godly and right. Everything that we would say, you can't touch that. The culture is saying, it's, it's okay, it won't hurt you. Moses, in Exodus chapter 2, was born in a dangerous time. We see how dangerous these days were just by looking back and seeing that Pharaoh had commanded all the people, this is verse 22 of chapter 1, all the people saying, every son who is born to you, you shall cast into the river and every daughter shall be saved alive. So these precious little boys were to be cast into the river, thrown to the gators, thrown into the Nile dangerous time. It was also a desperate time. If you go back to the beginning of Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, you see how desperate these times were. There arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Remember Joseph? He had basically ascended to the position of prime minister in the land, and as a result, he had saved his family who became the leaders of the Jewish nation. 
But this king didn't remember Joseph. And he said to his people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us. And so go up out of the land. Desperate for leadership. Desperate because of persecution. Dangerous times and desperate times. And the leadership of that day, much like the leadership in our nation today, seems to have forgotten the godly heritage that the children of Israel had introduced them to. What happens early in the life of Moses, very early and very rapidly in the life of Moses, becomes a picture of what I believe moms can experience with their own children if they will apply some of these principles that we can embrace just in a few verses. What can a mom do, or dad, or grandparents for that matter, what can a mom do when you are bringing children into a world that is dangerous and desperate? Well, the first thing that we see Moses' mom not only does but has to do is release your children into the security of God's hands. Release your children in the security of God's hands. In the first couple of verses we read here, we see that this beautiful child is born into the tribe of Levi. Yes, Moses was a PK, a priest kid. He was born into a preacher's family. Then we realize that even his mom at this time in life cannot isolate him from the evil influences of the world. Sometimes, moms, you may just want to hide that child and say, world, leave my child alone. And to a degree, you can do that for a little while, but there comes a time where you have to release your children into the security of God's hands. We can't hold on to them forever. Verse 3 says, when she could no longer hide him, she took this ark of bulrushes for him, and she began to dab it with pitch, with asphalt. What was she doing here? She was doing all that she could to provide for and protect him in the environment which he would be placed. But at the same time, she couldn't hold on to him too tightly. Moms, let's be sure we understand this. She did all that she could do to protect and provide a safe environment, but at the same time, she could not hold on to him too tightly. It's almost two different extremes that we see people move toward in the world in which we live today where maybe mom is trying to hold on too tightly and shelter too much, and if we hold on too tightly and shelter too much, it becomes stifling, and they rebel against that. Or on the other hand, we don't do enough to insulate their environment and to do what we can to provide what protection God would have us provide. Eventually, she released him into God's hands. It's interesting that her daughter, Moses' sister, had a a role to kind of help out as an onlooker. It says in verse 4, his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. She kept an eye on the situation. So for older brothers and uh, older sisters here this morning, I'll remind you that you are your brother's keeper. (laughs) You are your sister's keeper. You're to help keep an eye on them for mom sometimes. I know that 
my brother and sister here this morning, they're saying that keeping an eye on them does not mean pull all the seat cushions off the furniture when the parents leave and say, we're going to have WrestleMania and uh, I'll make it fair by fighting on my knees. But still, older siblings have a responsibility to help the parents look out for younger siblings along the way. How do we begin to let them go? How do we release them into the security of God's hands? Robert Lewis points out that a parent's leadership style must change over the course of childhood. He kind of illustrates it uh, with, uh, he played football for the University of Arkansas, and he uses kind of a football analogy. He says at a football game, you have the coach over there kind of barking plays, giving the orders, saying you've got to do this, you've got to run it this way. You know, there's my way or the highway basically is the mentality of most coaches. This is what you're going to do. I said do it. You're going to run it this way. But also at football games, you have cheerleaders over there. They don't really know everything that's going on, do they? They just kind of yell and go, fight, win, and that sort of thing. And what Robert Lewis says is somewhere along the way, from about zero to age 13, from the time you're born to you're about a teenager, parents are coaching you up. They're directing, they're giving orders, they're saying it's my way or, or the highway, my way or trailways, whatever. Well, they're not going to put you on the bus yet, but, but they're kind of giving the coaching. But once they become teenagers, you're to begin to transition. That's hard for us to do as parents. I realize that. I've been in that season of transitioning. I can't say that uh, I'm doing the greatest job of transitioning, but I'm doing my best. They begin to transition from coaches to cheerleaders, As a matter of fact, what Robert Lewis says is, if you try to coach a kid up when he or she is on into their teen years, they'll begin to kind of roll their eyes because they're like, I'm becoming a young adult. And I know a lot of you are looking at each other like, yeah, we've seen the eye roll. But a parent is moving from the coaching. They're in a transitional phase. They're kind of becoming a cheerleader in the life of these kids. That's releasing them. That's letting go. You can't do everything for them anymore. And then, after they become young adults, next week we're going to have a graduate recognition. And I can't believe how many graduates. One one of the wonderful things about these graduates, we've got so many graduates that have Pastor Ben stayed active all the way through their years here at church and and in the youth group and everything. But but then there there comes a services like this and the graduation ceremonies that will take place uh, over the next week or so. Parents are having to transition again. They're moving from that cheerleader to that, that counselor that's kind of on the sideline. That person you kind of walk over to and say, hey, I kind of blew that. I need some advice. As I shared with parents and grandparents just a moment ago, that's a stage where you don't want to interfere, but you've got to be available, and it's tough to find that balance along the way from time to time. But you're moving into being a counselor, a consultant. You're letting go. You're definitely... Whatever you do, Mom, you're not trying to run their life at that time. There have been young couples who have gotten divorced before because moms were trying to interfere in their young married life. That's where you just have to be available. You have to back off, and you have to let them go on their own, but know that you're available. You're that counselor. You're that confidant. You're that encourager saying, hey, you can do it. Stay with it. I'm here if you need me. And young people, they're usually hoping you'll let them know that you need them a long way. So listen to that advice. Even listen to the advice of grandparents, the grandparents of your children. I know what happens when you're in your 20s 
We get our hands on a book. I remember being a new parent. We get our hands on books like Growing Kids God's Way and all that, and we, we find some spiritual truth and some insight, and we're like, man, I'm going to know how to do my parent. I'm going to know how to do parenting. And this is going to be great because I've read a book. Now, obviously, we need to read the book. We need to be in the Word of God. And we need to supplement that with all the continuing education on parenting and marriage that we can. But there's something that a book can't teach you that experience can't. But we'll read that book and we'll say, you know what? My parents didn't do that, so they must not have known what they were doing. Well, think about it for a second. Young parents like myself, think about it for a moment. Either you turned out okay, and so obviously they knew a little bit about what they were doing, right? Or you didn't turn out so great. And who better to learn from than the one who has already learned from their mistakes and can say, well, I'll tell you what not to do because they'll become like you if you do it. And so learn from the advice of, of parents and grandparents along the way. Release them into God's hands. And that's what we experienced this morning with the time of dedication, putting these children in God's hands and trusting him with them. Now, here's the interesting thing. There's a little bit of narrative irony right here in the passage, and that's that they, they come right back to you. So, what do you mean come right back? Well, here it happened really quick. I said this is kind of a microcosm of the big picture, but the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe. This is verse 5. And her maidens walked along the river. And when she saw the ark among the reeds and sent her maid to get it, she opened it. She saw the child. Behold, the baby wept. She had compassion. Well, that's what all young ladies do, right, when they see a baby. Ah, oh, had compassion on the child. She had compassion and said, this is one of the Hebrew children. Then his sister, by the way, there was a wise older sister in this passage. Sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, in this school, hey, you, you want me to go get one of the Hebrew ladies to nurse this little Jewish child for you? <laughs> she knew it was her brother, but she's, she's being as shrewd as a snake and as innocent as a dove right here. Can I get one of the Hebrew ladies to nurse this child? She knew what she was going to do. She's going to take the child back to mom. Pharaoh's daughter, verse 8, said to her, go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. And this is a wonderful thing. When we put our kids in God's hands, like I said, this is a little picture of the big picture. When we put our, our children in God's hands, he gives them back to us and asks us to be a steward. So we're to receive our children into the stewardship of a godly home. Receive your children into the stewardship of a godly home. Now he's back in the hands of the nurturer. Not only did God place Moses back in the hands of his mother as a steward, here's the cool thing. She got paid to do it. When we put our kids in God's hands, God is going to protect them and provide for them in ways that we never possibly could have dreamed. And so our job, as Ephesians says, is to bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, knowing that we've put them in God's hands, we've given them to the Lord. He's given them back to us to bring them up, to nurture them for his glory. What a gift. Now, by the way, everybody got their gift for moms on Mother's Day? 
everybody already purchased a gift. Here's 10 gifts. If you're too late and you need to take one of these back, then, then that's cool. 10 gifts that moms have said they do not want for Mother's Day. 10 gifts that no mom wants for Mother's Day. Number one, cleaning supplies. I might have tried that a long time ago, not anymore. Cellulite cream was on the list. Flowers from the neighbor's field. I brought the dandelions one time. It's precious at the moment when your mom's got allergies. It's not all that cool. Um, Here's what made the top ten list. Monster truck tickets. Okay. There's like two moms in here somewhere going, I'll take that. Um, Coupon books. Now, if you make it yourself and it includes hugs, you might get away with it. A gift card for Weight Watchers. She may want it, but it communicates the wrong message on Mother's Day. Exercise equipment. Same thing. Uh, Dad, here's one you got to be careful of. Something that's really for the kids. Mom doesn't want Play-Doh, no matter how much it entertains the kids. A picture frame with no picture. And then number 10 was nothing. <laughs> oh, you're like, what is the greatest gift you could ever give it? Listen, you, by the way, God is already, if, if, if she is a mom, no matter how you spell it out, well, like, like uh, Ben and Jeff, every time I say Ben and Jeff, I think of ice cream or something. Is that an ice cream brand? Ben and Jerry's. If you spell it out like Ben and Jeff, um, she received the greatest gift when she became a mom. I know the guys were like, she received the greatest gift when she married me. She received the children are a heritage, are a gift from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. So she received a wonderful gift when she became a mom, and it's hard to beat that. Now, I'm not saying, well, don't go get flowers. Pastor Robbie said, you already had your gift. So love, honor, give her a gift, honor her, but you can't beat the gift of, of children and life of that mom. What do kids then need is the gift from parents. If we're the stewards... If they are a gift, mom, if those children are a gift from God, you're to be a steward of that gift. What are the stewards to provide to the children? What do children need from moms and from parents? Well, they need a few things. They need a balance of love and discipline and instruction. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13, now abide faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. They need something that usually moms give better than anybody else, and that's a lot of love, but they need it to be balanced with discipline and instruction. If there's not a balance, the discipline and instruction in their life will lead to rebellion without love, but love without discipline and instruction will lead to permissiveness. Often, rebellion and permissiveness lead to the same types of behavior, and it's because there's not a balance of love with the discipline and instruction. They also need help in discovering their personalities and their bents, if you will. Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. The way he should go there has to do with his personality and his bent. Help them discover what God created them to do with their life. Where are they gifted? Where is God blessing them? What about academically? What are their academic strengths? What are their weaknesses? How can you train them to build on those strengths? Athletics, the arts, music, and drama, and and things like that. What are their bents? Where are they skilled? Where are they gifted? And if you've got 
three, four, five children. They're probably all bent and gifted in different areas, and they have remarkably different personalities. Some are more mechanically minded, and you can tell they're going to be an engineer from when the first time uh, they took the swing set apart that you put together. Others are more artistic in nature, and others are, are, are verbal in nature, so help them to discover that bent. Also avoid certain extremes of giving them too much of things in their life. If you are too controlling, it will incite them. If you give them too much money, you will spoil and pacify them. Just because they're screaming louder than the other kids in the grocery line doesn't mean you've got to reach for the candy in the candy aisle, right? Too high or unreal expectations, discourages them where they feel like they can never please mom or dad. Avoid extremes. They can make children bitter, not better. What else do they need from parents that are being good stewards? They need us to demonstrate our beliefs with our lifestyle. Now, I realize that pragmatism makes for bad theology sometimes, but pragmatism is the doctrine of our world today. In other words, if it works for you, then it must be real and true. Again, that's bad theology, but the bottom line is if you say that I believe Jesus is the Son of God, the Bible is the Word of God, and I'm going to live out this faith, if it doesn't ring true in their life, If it doesn't work for you, if you're not living what you say you believe, they're going to say it's not real and it's not true. So while I refute pragmatism in many aspects, I believe it's the Word of God is very practical. We need to show that it works. They need us to demonstrate our beliefs with our lifestyle. And then finally, here's what kids need from their parents, us to love God and each other so that they believe in love and believe in God. Let us love one another, for love is of God. Everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. He that does not love does not what? Does not know God, for God is love. And so as good stewards, we want to provide these things in the lives of our children as we gradually learn to let them go and release them again. See, you very spiritually release them that first time into God's hands, and then you receive them as stewards. But there's going to come a time where you have to very literally release them again. And what you need to remember at that point is this, that your children are under the sovereignty of God's heart. See, as we kind of close this out this morning, I want to to remind you of something, parents. Your children are under the sovereignty of God's heart. What are you talking about, the sovereignty? God is in control. God's heart, God knows what's best. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, God is too wise to be mistaken, God is too good to be unkind, and when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. There's going to be times as you watch your kids grow and as you release them very literally and they go out in this world, you're going to say, God, I don't understand what's going on. I did my best to raise them up according to your word, and and, and they're, they're off in this world, and I don't really see what's going on in their life. I don't understand why this is going on in their life. You can trust them into the heart of God. The day came when she could hold on to Moses no longer. Look at verse 10. A child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. So she called his name Moses saying, because I drew him out 
of the water, the one who was drawn out of the water. It was a reminder of God's sovereign hand in his life that even Pharaoh's daughter would discover her to begin with was a picture of God's sovereign hand at work, God's sovereign heart over the life of Moses. The day will come, moms, when you can't hold on to those kids any longer. And listen, they are safer in God's hands than anywhere else. They are sa- you say, well, I've got such a heart. God has given me a heart for my children. Man, listen, I don't think most men can get their mind around a mother's heart. But I can tell you somebody who also has a heart for your kids, and that's God. God's sovereign heart is watching out for your kids when you can't be there. Well, how did Moses turn out? I mean, he was just kind of given over to this pagan government ruler. How did he turn out? Hebrews eleven twenty four through 26, and you know the story in Exodus. He led the children of Israel out of bondage and into the promised land. Well, he got them to the border before he passed away, and he trained Joshua to take them on in. Hebrews eleven twenty four through 26, by faith Moses, when grown, refused the privileges of the Egyptian royal house. He chose a hard life with God's people rather than an opportunistic soft life of sin with the oppressors. He valued suffering in the Messiah's camp far greater than Egyptian wealth because he was looking ahead, anticipating the payoff. By an act of faith, he turned his heel on Egypt, indifferent to the king's blind rage, He had his eye on the one, Jesus Christ, no eye can see, and kept right on going. She couldn't keep him around in a physical sense anymore, but he would never get out from under the sovereign watch of an almighty God. Next week, as we begin to celebrate these seniors that are graduating, the temptation is to want to keep them close, keep them right here, keep an eye on them. Let's let a sovereign God do wonderful things with them for his glory. We're going to worry about them, no doubt about it. And we'll read every scripture passage that tells us not to worry. But listen, you've had practice, right? By the time you have to let them go, you worried. First time they strapped it on to play ball, you worried. The time somebody was picking on at school, you worried when they got that teacher that you knew wasn't a fair teacher. You worry. When they get the driver's license, Pastor Ben, I remember being a youth pastor, and I started thinking, man, she's 16, he's 16, they're driving to church, they they go squealing out of the parking lot, and you're like, Lord, help them not to get killed on the way home tonight. We we have plenty of practice, but we need to learn to put them in God's hands. God cares about them more than we ever could care and love them. It's going to happen. A girl was sitting behind her mom as her mom was sitting on the floor. She began to see a gray hair here. She plucked out a little gray hair. Mom thought it was funny, dealt with a little bit of pain there. She saw another gray hair, and she pulled another gray hair out, and she said, Mom, where are these gray hairs coming from? And she said, well, I'll tell you where they come from. (laughs) Every time you do something wrong, every time you make me worry... See, that, that's, that's what happens when, when, uh, when, when your daughter makes you worry, you get a gray hair. When your daughter does something that scares you, you get a gray hair. When, when your daughter has been misbehaving, you get another gray hair. And the daughter looked at her and said, oh, that's why grandma's hairs are all gray. 
we're going to worry about them. What do we do in those moments? The Bible tells us to be anxious for nothing and everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. God, thank you for these kids. Make your requests known to him. Pray for them. Put them in God's hands. Go through this process again. Release them. Release them into God's hands once again. Receive them as stewards. Whatever level you still have in their life, just be a good steward of that influence. And then remember that they're under the sovereign care of a God whose heart breaks for them more than ours ever could, so much that he sent his son to die for him on Calvary's cross. Would you bow your heads with me this morning?